electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's essential morning show. PCR 2. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today, McDonald's CEO out of a job. What's new and not about his exit with Yale's Jeffrey Sonnenfeld? Roughly 90 CEOs who left office last year, 40% of them was for misconduct. Elizabeth Warren selling Medicare for All on the campaign trail. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner, weighs in. What happened to Obamacare and why aren't we letting that work? I don't understand why the Democrats need to remake health care again. And debating its price tag with key Obamacare advisor, Dr. Zeke Emanuel. The goal is to have one system for everyone. The question is whether she's legitimately financed that goal. And your answer is? Then prioritizing what we value. Kickstarter's co-founder wants business to be more generous. What happens when economic value runs into, like, values of free speech? It was like a record scratch moment. Those stories and much more. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. It's Monday, November 4th, 2019. Squawk Pod begins right now. Two, one, Becky's mic. You. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. First up this Monday, big news from McDonald's. The company's board has announced that they've fired CEO Steve Easterbrook and replaced him with Chris Kempsinski, McDonald's USA president. What prompted this corporate shakeup? Easterbrook's consensual relationship with an employee, which he admitted was a mistake. Prior to this announcement, McDonald's stock was up 96% since Easterbrook took the reins in March of 2015. Joining us to have that conversation right now uh, about leadership change at McDonald's, uh, Jeff Sonnenfeld of the Yale School of Management is also a CNBC contributor. Jeff, uh, this was a huge surprise, a uh, huge surprise for uh, investors in McDonald's, employees, management, clearly uh, made a mistake, but it was a consensual relationship. And we've now had a handful of these situations. How do you, how do you read it? Well, it, we do see a, a trend here that of the roughly 90 CEOs who left office last year is uh, 40% of them was for misconduct. We haven't seen numbers that high. 40% for misconduct. <clears throat> and most of that misconduct was, uh, was, had to do with, uh, with, with improper uh, relationships at work. But you make an important distinction. This was consensual. But we've seen consensual relationships lead to a flame-out CEO before, Harry Harry Stonecipher at Boeing, uh, quite a number of them. We've, we've seen them at, at Best Buys and, and uh, Intel last year, and it's, it's just really a shame. Uh, great news here, though, is that this is a board that's been prepared for uh, the unexpected crises. They've had seven CEOs o- over the past dozen, 13 years, and they've come off the bench, uh, whether or not it's been two unexpected deaths of, of young CEOs to other uh, unfortunate events. They've had the bench strength ready. Most companies go to an interim in a time like this, but Steve Kempensky is in there as the full-time president and CEO. Jeff, the, the, it hasn't always been great. How long was Don Thompson there? And, and that did not, that, that bench strength didn't work out for the company, and it was a relief when Easterbrook got, no, Easterbrook got in there. That, 
and um, since we're just talking amongst ourselves privately, I, I want to throw out any, any names that implicate anybody. The, the intended successor before Thompson came in had this same problem. Uh, it was, uh, yeah. well, in fact, I'll use the name. is Ralph Alvarez. He was lined up to be the CEO. And, in fact, he'd been forced out of the company years earlier uh, for this kind of misconduct. Right. They brought him back in. Uh, I think Jim Skinner was the CEO, brought him back in. They had him lined up, thought he'd learned his lesson, and it was two pretty profound strikes against him. So, uh, so Thompson had been the default candidate. But they, uh, and it was about, I don't know, three and a half, four years on the job, a, a, a wilting uh, store performance and things. I think they were down like 4 or 5% under Thompson. So they had to bring in somebody new. But these, these transitions have been pretty smooth, even though they've been way too frequent for this amount of time. It's unfortunate uh, how it's unfolded, but it, not to confuse us with any Me Too issue. I think well, but a major but lesson by, here. But, yeah, yeah, Becky wants to get in, but just by definition, it, it's an oxymoron. Consensual sex with a CEO is almost impossible because right. it is impossible. of the relationship. And we should so, mention, by the way, for what it's worth, but I looked, the first, first thing I looked, he's divorced. Right. He's a single man. Right. I, I, I know that may not matter in this, but I, I looked to, but to see what CEOs was going on have the power point. over everyone. 100%, and that's the point. Yeah. In this environment, if you're the CEO of the company, you can't have a relationship with anybody, anybody. below you. Uh, no matter whether you're single or whatever the situation is. Hey, Jeff, can I just uh, yeah. tell you about two views on Wall Street today, see which one sounds right to you. BTIG is maintaining its price target uh, and its buy rating for McDonald's. But if you listen to Piper, they're downgrading the stock to a neutral from overweight, cutting the price target to $195 from 224 recommending people buy Chipotle instead. And they just say, look, changes of this magnitude tend to be disruptive. What do you think? Well, Chipotle, which used to be part of McDonald's, it's ironic that they should say that, but Chipotle pulled off a, a very successful change of leadership from its, its founder, and that, that is a good bet. I wish I'd made it myself. I didn't. However, in this case, if you liked what McDonald's was doing, there's no reason to panic. Right. There is great continuity. This, uh, this successor uh, has been very well battle-tested. In his short career, he's been at Procter & Gamble. Uh, he uh, been at Boston Consulting Group. He's been at Kraft, very senior roles. At PepsiCo, he soared. He was head of, of uh, North American beverages, the, the uncarbonated beverages. Uh, it did a great job, by all accounts, at, at PepsiCo. I have so a philosophical question for you, and I, I'm wading into a very sensitive area. I know that I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I want to I ask you. Steve Easterbrook, would you hire him in another company after this? And the question, the reason I ask you, the, the reason I ask you the question, I'm, I'm thinking of Mark Hurd. I'm thinking of so many other executives who will get effectively, I don't want to say slapped on the wrist, but they will get slapped on the wrist. They will be forced out of the company. And I think, and maybe I'm wrong, in a year from now or two years from now, somewhere else, this otherwise relatively talented uh, executive will get hired somewhere else and some other company will be the beneficiary of their services. What do you think of that? Well, we have seen CEOs resurface. With Mark Hurd, the issue wasn't the relationship, the sexual relationship. In fact, apparently there wasn't anything consummated despite his, his desperate efforts to do so. Uh, it, and it, it, what the, 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 the it trail of emails, money. it was the right. misuse of company. Yeah, it was right. the misuse of company resources that was the issue. But in many of these cases, like with where Harry Stonesafer at Boeing uh, and others is, if you create the policy, which is what the case in, 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 in every one of these situations, the CEO has to live by the own policy they've created. Nobody will believe it. Is there life after this for Steve Easterbrook? I mean, particularly given the performance of McDonald's while he's been there. 
Yeah, I think so. Because you saw Mark Hurd, I think he performed very well as essentially a co-CEO with, 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 with uh, Safra Kotz. And, and he's a very talented guy. He, missed, he admit he made it a mistake. He lost his legitimacy where he is. And I think he can learn a lesson. If you haven't killed anybody and you've, you've shown genuine uh, contrition, uh, there is a path to, uh, to getting a new start. But it often isn't quite the same um, the prominence and power as the position you had previously. They just found out about this, right? I mean, it's not... They, not... Ju- they just they found out Friday and, yeah. and they filed with the, with the SEC. Wow. I hope he's okay. This looked like he... I'm sure he's fine. I think that that was the camera. We we lost him on the camera, oh, right. but he's nonetheless, good. yep. All right. Um, you got another story though that's fascinating. That is one way to hit a if we needed a hard break or something. That's one Oops, way satellite. to uh, yeah. Anyway, Airbnb is uh, changing some policies after five people uh, died in a shooting at a Halloween party at a Northern California uh, home rental. The party was advertised on social media as the Airbnb mansion party. Police were called to the house twice that night, even before the shooting was reported. And then um, Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky tweeted over the weekend that the company will now ban party houses and is working to get rid of abusive host and guest conduct. The company's expanding the screening of high-risk reservations uh, and creating a party house rapid response team. Chesky uh, said... Uh, we must be better, and this is unacceptable. This has been a problem for years, though. I mean, we've done our own CNBC investigation looking into some of these issues, places in Miami, neighborhoods where they were just sick right. of these houses being turned into party, party houses. houses. And then advertised. And, and advertised, and such. then the street becomes a chaotic right. place. So there have been there have been neighborhoods and yep. uh, municipalities that have been pushing It's a very hard thing to control, but I think they're going to try to start monitoring these advertisements. It looks like you you could kick out bad players relatively easily. I'm going to be talking to Brian Chesky Mm -hmm. on Wednesday at the Dealbook Conference, which will bring you live uh, on TV. So we will ask him about this very very issue. Is it time for that again? It is. Once a year. It's the most wonderful time. It's the most wonderful time of the the year. year. And it's, um, I mean, could I come if I wanted to for free? No. No, I mean, you would have to know somebody to get a comp. Somebody else could I get along with. Yeah. yeah. Can I go on StubHub? You cannot go on StubHub. The lineup is so impressive, and the and the interviewer is so well prepared. Yeah. That the prices are very really high for the tickets. It. Huh? You're such a kind soul. All right, let's talk about Under Armour. Shares falling sharply this morning. The company confirming that it is the subject of a federal probe by the Justice Department and the SEC over its accounting practices. The company says that it began responding in 2017 to requests for information and says that it believes its practices and disclosures were appropriate. Big news following the news that Kevin Plank very recently said he would be stepping down as CEO, staying on as chairman. Uh, But, of course, it puts that entire situation in a new light, too. We're waiting to hear more about this today from the company during earnings. And it it appears, or at least sounds like, obviously, he would have known about these issues. Well, they said they they started started responding in 2017. Exactly. It's a little unclear about what what questions were asked at that point. And and what transpired between now. Right. How it then progressed. But I imagine, as you said, there'll be lots of questions today. Mention this one because I like it. Okay. Listen to this. Yeah, you would. Uh, You still got to get up at three. Uh, Microsoft (laughs) Japan. (laughs) Yeah. Microsoft Japan tested a four-day work week and saw, wait a minute, a productivity jump of 40%. That means you actually made money, right? You actually worked. Mm-hmm. In the month of August, the company gave employees every Friday off to assess the merits of a reduced work week. Meeting times were capped to 30 minutes. Wow. 
This would be capped at zero. Uh, and the use of remote conferences rose. What would managers do, though, if they didn't have meetings? They'd have absolutely nothing to do. Sales per employee uh, d- during that time rose by 40% compared to the prior year. Costs uh, fell during the month. Microsoft uh, used 23% less electricity, printed about 59% fewer pages. 92% of employees said that, what about the other eight? <laughs> Who said they didn't? What idiot said, geez, I miss work in that. Anyway, um, they said they liked the four-day work week. 92%, Andrew. The other people are, I guess. I mean, what are the other eight? Those are the people that don't know who Mike Pence is, the president, uh, vice president, right? The ones you always talk about. 12%. Coming up, Medicare for All. How to pay for Senator Elizabeth Warren's 20-plus trillion dollar plan with Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner. All the bank deposits in the United States combined are $14 trillion. So she could sweep all the banks in this country of all their money. She still wouldn't be able to pay for it. And Dr. Zeke Emanuel, the architect of Obamacare. Shifting it from the private sector to government, that's a shift of who pays, not a shift of how much is paid. Uh, Zeke, come on. Squawk Pod. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Three, two, one. Hugh Andrew. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. The next story on today's podcast, Senator Elizabeth Warren's $20.5 trillion plan to provide health care for all. The Democratic presidential candidate has caught criticism from both sides of the aisle on this issue, and she even inspired an SNL sketch this past weekend. Despite the blowback Senator Warren has held to her plan, here she is at the last Democratic candidate's debate. We just need to be clear about what Medicare for All is all about. Instead of paying premiums into insurance companies and then having insurance companies build their profits by saying no to coverage, we're going to do this by saying everyone is covered by Medicare for All. Every health care provider is covered. And the only question here in terms of difference is where to send the bill. As you'll hear, not everyone agrees. Here's Becky. Joining us right now is Dr. Zeke Emanuel. He's University of Pennsylvania Vice Provost and Architect of Obamacare. And Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA Commissioner and CNBC contributor. He's also on the Pfizer board at this point. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Thanks. Uh, Good to be here. Good to see you both. Zeke, let's start with you because this makes Obamacare uh, look like a flimflam pen. What do you think of this? Well, I think uh, Senator Warren put it in the right context. Over the next decade, 10 years, we're going to spend in the current health care system $52 trillion, $20 billion, $20 trillion is what uh, she needs to come up with. The question isn't, are we going to spend that much money? The question is, who do we pay? Who pays for it? And she correctly points out, you know, shifting it from the private sector to government, that's a shift of who pays, not a shift of how much is paid. Uh, and Z, she, come on, let's, she, let's be she a little... Deline- <laughs> well, that is let's, true. Let's be a she delineates the, the kind of taxes that right. she wants. You could shift um, a lot of those some things Some of it's going to be by taxing the corporations who already provide health care to continue it. Having states and localities continue to pay. 
raising taxes on financial transactions a penny on ten dollars, uh, taxing people who make fifty million dollars and more. No, it's two taxing cents, anybody who's um, a one percenter, which is I think four hundred twenty-eight thousand dollars income. Tax. So that's Just her a- mechanism. Uh, the middle class will pay something because their incomes will actually go up. There are no more HSAs, no more premiums, uh, so they will pay some more, not because tax rates go up, but because they have more income. She Just also to put assumes... This, oh, go ahead, sorry, Scott. Becky. Go ahead, Scott. I was going to say, it's such a big sum, it's hard to put in perspective. Just to put this in perspective, she needs $26 trillion in new money, so $20 trillion in taxes. She says that $6 trillion is going to come from the states. If All the bank deposits in the United States combined are $14 trillion. If she could sweep all the banks in this country of all their money, she still wouldn't be able to pay for it. The entire market capitalization wait, 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 wait. of the S&P 500 is $25 trillion. So she could socialize all the companies in the, in the S&P 500 and sell them to China. She still wouldn't have enough money. It's just an astronomical figure. So I think it's hard to put into perspective. And one, one more point. You know, it is true that the companies are now paying for health care, but they're paying for health care with a tax advantage. If they're now paying for health care through a taxes, it's a net tax increase on companies, and that's an employer tax. So that's well, going to come Wait, wait, wait. Can, can I just, just say, can point, I, can I say just, one thing? Let me just say we, we one thing, and you put can, in perspective. Zeke, let me just these say one thing, and then numbers. I will turn these this to you. These are not one-year numbers. These are 10-year numbers, but let's just put a point on it. With the tax shifting, with going through that, I think what the intention is is trying to get employers to say, forget it, we're just going to put all our people into this public system that goes away, everything else happens with that. That's the intention, right, Zeke? Well, I mean, the goal is to have one system for everyone. You know, you may not agree with that goal. The question is whether she's legitimately financed that goal. And your answer is? Oh, I think she has has come up with more detail than any candidate has. Now, I may not agree with all the detail, and I may not agree with all the taxing, but, you know, having employers... Maintain effort. That's essentially what it is. That what they paid in the past is what they're going to pay in the future. That's not a new tax. That is exactly continuing what we have had all the time. It's shifting it from employers to the federal government. Can can I just ask you a couple of questions about some of the assumptions she has? I think she thinks that prescription drug costs are going to come down 70 percent. She believes that uh, hospitals will now be paid, I think, 110 percent of Medicare, even though they they receive much higher than that from private insurance, which helps many of them operate by accepting Medicare patients currently. And I think a lot of hospitals would be in a position where they're operating at a loss. What, What do you think of some of those assumptions, Zeke? So, uh, here's what I would say. First of all, you have to combine that with administrative costs coming down from 12%. She says 2.3%. I think that's probably too low. But they will save on administration and they'll save on drug costs. I think 110% may be aggressive. I think at 120 or 125%, she would not get an argument about that. Drug costs, I, again, she says brand names will come down 70% because on her scheme, you can have only 110% over the international market basket. Again, I think that's probably too aggressive. But I do think getting drug costs down and getting hospital costs down and getting administrative costs down are the core of any cost control mechanism. And I think Scott would agree with that. You at have a, to get those prices down. Scott? At, 100, at 110%, you have to get rid of a lot of academic overhead. But, you know, one of the things people say Medicare is inexpensive to administer. Medicare um, doesn't do any utilization review. So they don't hire people to actually look over patients and look over cases. What they do is they impose rules on private sector, on, on health care services, and they back them up with civil and criminal penalties. So the cost of administering Medicare is borne by the companies that have to spend exorbitant amounts of money complying with Medicare rules, those costs are hidden. So to say that Medicare costs less to administer, yes, the Medicare agency spends less money on SG&A than a private health insurance company does, 
That's because they can shift those costs onto the private sector. One of the things, and this is a final point, one of the things we have to look at is how Medicare has reimbursed technology over time. And if you look at the segments of healthcare services that are paid primarily by Medicare, like dialysis, we see no innovation. And that's because Medicare hasn't been able to accommodate the cost of new innovation. And so you've seen people take investment out of the sectors that Medicare primarily pays for. That's, the, that's one of the risks here, that you're going to see capital come out of areas where, where now Medicare is the primary payer. So, Scott, Scott, look, let's be very clear. Not all innovation is good or actually progress. But one of the things Warren does do is push hard on alternative payment models like bundle payment um, and other value-based models, which are going to shove more of the decision-making on which technologies get adopted, which are efficient, onto providers, hospitals and doctors. And that should actually breed, I think, more innovation. Well, what we've, seen, what we've seen in Medicare, Zeke, and I think you'd probably agree with this, what we've seen in Medicare is the nature of innovation in, in Medicare co- uh, compensated services, so in-hospital services, is geared towards trying to improve productivity at lower cost, not necessarily improve outcomes. And so I think you're going to see more innovation geared towards trying to improve productivity and lower cost of delivery. Is that a bad to, thing? Is that a no, bad it's thing, a, Scott? It's a, good, it's a good thing, and we've seen that in the medical device space. But you also want innovation geared towards improving outcomes, even if it costs more money. And, that, and you've seen that kind of innovation come out of Medicare reimbursed sectors like dialysis. We've seen no real innovation in dialysis. I think you would agree with that. And I that, think that's, pr- that's because that <laughs> Medicare is a primary payer in that space. I, I, I'm not sure it's Medicare. We have a duopoly of just two companies dominating that space that have well, no interest Medicare. Medicare drove that duopoly. We didn't have that duopoly at the outset. It consolidated because of Medicare is the payer, and you have to do it at scale in order to make up margin. Zeke, I have a question for you as a doctor. How do you feel about all of your peers and colleagues in in your profession who I imagine are going to uh, be paid ultimately less? Well, they, uh, uh, look, I find that a little surprising on this bill is that uh, all the physicians get Medicare rates Um, I think that's probably going to be too low. And what I think actually has to be done is we have to look at primary care and reimburse it more and and also pediatric specialists, so pediatric heart specialists or GI specialists. And and how do you think this is going to change the incentive structure for people to become doctors in the United States? Doctors are still going to do very well, and they're still going to be sick people, and we're still going to have to care for them. I think compared to other industries, it's still a very attractive place to be. And by the way, at this moment, certainly, and I think going forward, if you want to be an entrepreneur and innovate, combining technology, uh, AI, with helping people, healthcare is the place to be, but, in but my see, opinion. Just, just to put a fine point on it. It's clear that most doctors, on average, are going to be paid less than they probably are today. And, of course, the ones who have shot the moon, if you will, and done tremendously well in the private, private space of this won't be able to do that anymore, right? Yeah, look, I, I think if you've done tremendously well by, you know, doing lots of hips or do, doing lots of prostates, this will be a different story. One of the advantages I see, however, is... If you go to bundle payment and value-based pricing, doctors should continue to do well because look under bundle payment, one of the things that happens is doctors actually figure out how to be more efficient. They actually end up with more money. They save money by, as Scott said, innovating on efficiency, not sending people to rehab hospitals or or skilled nursing facilities. We don't all have to, like, 
diet 75 anymore, do we? Like, like you wanted us to do before? I'm not dying at 75. You know, Shatner's 89. He's still in the amazing race over in Europe. L- have listen. Have you seen Clint Eastwood's new movie? It's called The Mule. He's, he's the actor and the director. He's 89. Don't, don't, you're getting closer. I think let, you're starting to change your things. Tools. Let me say two things. First of all, yesterday I went, out, <laughs> I went out and ran six miles at about 7.40 a mile. Perfectly fine. And second of all, there are some outliers. You keep mentioning the outliers. You don't outliers. mention everyone else. <laughs> Al- hey, hey, Zeke, you ran that. Listen to me. I ran a seven-minute half mile yesterday. <laughs> Way to go, Joe. Joe. Damn, damn straight. Fantastic. But keep damn it up. Damn straight. Keep it up. Zeke, honestly, just in terms of how difficult this would be to pass, let's well, say, through Congress look, or with look, the American people, you know how difficult Obamacare was. This is a much more extreme yeah, well, plan. What are so the let, odds let, that America's let, ready for something? It's like a good this question, Becky. What, what happened to Obamacare and why aren't we laying that work? I don't understand why the Democrats need to remake health care again. Obamacare was supposed to solve a lot of our challenges. And just to pick up on a point, Andrew raised with re- dramatically reducing reimbursement for physicians, this plan also reimburses drugs at Medicaid rates. And that's going to have a profound impact on investment innovation in the innovation. drug sector. Yep. So let, let, quickly, let, let we me got say, about 20 seconds before they yeah. roll a break over us. So let, let me say, politically, it's going to be a challenge. On the other hand, it's <laughs> quite play. well. It's quite clear that the public is upset. And I would say I, I agree with Scott. Obamacare has had uh, some major impacts. There are six states in the District of Columbia that have uh, greater than 95 percent coverage. They have been able to succeed. And I think that's a triumph. Come back. I would love to discuss this again. Thank you for your time today. And I think we have much more to dig into. Take care. Bye. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, Kickstarter's co-founder, Yancey Strickler. We've always had a strong belief that the long-term success of the company relies in a strong tie to our community, a strong tie to these larger values. And I think that's something that's needed elsewhere. What inventing crowdsourcing taught him about generosity. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. You're about to hear a recent interview with the co-founder and former CEO of Kickstarter. Now, this was a discussion about startups, building a sustainable business, the lure of going public, and what we value with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. So we saved it for you for the podcast. Here's Becky. Our next guest started and ran a company that has decided to stay private. Yancey Strickler is the co-founder and former CEO of crowdsourcing pioneer Kickstarter. He's also the author of a new book. It's called This Could Be Our Future, A Manifesto for a More Generous World. 
Yancy, thanks for being here today. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, before we dive into the book, I want to get a little bit of the backstory for yeah. people who may not be as familiar with it. You are somebody who has kind of preached this and lived this for years yeah. about not maximizing profit, not taking every dime that you could possibly get. Yeah. Explain that ethos. Explain why you believe that. Well, Kickstarter, the company I co-founded, we became a public benefit corporation in 2015, which requires us to legally balance producing a benefit for shareholders with also producing a positive benefit for society. And that just came very naturally to us. And also, it's part of like why people love Kickstarter. And it's a platform that appeals to creative people, to artists. They want to know that they're using a platform that's not using them to cash in and like exit you know, the, the scene or something like that. So we've always had a strong belief that the long-term success of the company relies in a, a strong, you know, a strong tie to our community, a strong tie to these larger values. And I think that's something that's needed elsewhere and is, and is already happening elsewhere. Kickstarter, just for those who aren't even familiar with that, you find a way to get some seed money for yeah. artists or people who are looking to do a creative project, something yeah, like that. Yeah, Kickstarter, someone posts an idea of something they want to make, the public puts up the money to fund it. There's no financial upside, you're just getting a copy of whatever's getting made. But, you know, successful Kickstarter projects include Peloton, which just went public a couple weeks ago, Oculus Rift, hundreds of restaurants, things so like that. So we had this conversation actually multiple yeah. years ago. Yeah. How I, how, because I don't know if you remember this. To me, I was a Kickstarter felt like a, a, one of the greatest philanthropic ideas around. Yeah. But I never thought of it as a true investment because if I had put money up for a Peloton, I might have gotten a bike out of it. Right. 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 But I'm not getting what uh, John Foley and all of the other investors right. are getting. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, when Peloton's putting its project on Kickstarter, it raised a couple hundred thousand dollars. But it was an early idea. It was like a, quite a speculative thing. And so it wasn't maybe a great business case at that moment. It was right. just more, here's a couple entrepreneurs. We have this vision. We think that there's public interest. Can we capitalize on it? And so we're a way, you know, Kickstarter is a way that people can interact directly with the public and build that community. But, yeah, there's no financial upside. The upside is more communal upside. It's, look at this restaurant. My name's on the door. Do you, do you, is there anything to, if, if I were to push back, and, and I, I, I look at some of the things in your book, that a lot of the ills of society you, you tie to the, the profit incentive. And it, it's, I don't know how you look at it in a vacuum. I mean, we've tried other things, and it may not be perfect, but it's the yeah. best society has ever figured out, the yeah. profit incentive. Yeah. And it just seems like if, if a company uh, is profitable, employees keep their jobs, uh, the employees keep paying taxes to fund education and all the social needs we need. If someone becomes wealthy by being an entrepreneur, he becomes a philanthropist. It, it just seems like the converse, I don't think you put forward that, wow, it's really better if you don't make any money. And if, if the company is unsuccessful and actually loses money, you're really doing well because it just, th that seems like the converse of what you're saying. I guess it's not. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with all of what you're saying. And I feel like the focus on growing the capital base has made sense to this point in history. But I feel like we might be coming to a point where it's time to change streams. Less, and, but, and, and actually try to make less profits and be, be less profitable? Try, or, or, I think or, it's try to grow value in, in multiple ways and not just one. It's but doesn't, just isn't, isn't profit the engine to be able to do all these things that you want to do for society, either through taxes or philanthropy? Possibly, but I think that there are, I think that there are limits to these things. And, and, you know, taxes is interesting because the tax rates keep going down, so the ability for the, you know, the taxes to be used to redistribute some of that income is not really happening to the degree it happened before. We want to redistribute opportunity. Do we want to just purely redistribute income? Uh, no, I think opportunity is the ideal. Oh, okay. I mean, I think an equal opportunity society is what we should work towards. But what I imagine is that 
financial value is the first rational value we've learned to define, we've learned to trade, we've learned to like, it's all on the same dashboards, but I don't think that's the last one. And to me, the next evolutionary step for society is figuring out what are those next values. So something like the climate crisis, I think, puts that right at, right at the forefront crisis. of our mind. Right? Because nice the day. fact that if we're trying to change that, to change the amount right. of carbon in the atmosphere, we all need to be working carbon on a similar language. Right. Yeah. Um, have you, is there an, a historical precedent for making this model yeah, and that you can point to where it's been more successful than what we do now. Yeah, I would say I would say Panasonic. I mean, Panasonic no, no. I mean, is, a country, a place where we've become less, you know, less capitalistic, more socialistic. Is has yeah. it been done right anywhere in the past where you've had a, a good outcome? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think if you look where? at something like Europe, where you have a capitalist society that's also balanced with a strong social safety net, you have a mix of saying like. We're not asking for money to be the solution to everything because the conversion fees on that are high, but you're providing other services in other ways. I mean, I think that's a smart way to think about things. I don't know. We, we can choose, uh, and, and it is a, an alternative, but in the last 40 years, I mean, the, the people are fo- probably 40, 50 percent less wealthy in Europe than here because of GDP, growing at 40 percent less. I think, I think we saw an interesting conflict a few weeks ago with the NBA in China, right, where the idea that economic expansion would be just the would cure all ills, and then we ran into this clash of, well, what happens when economic value runs into, like, values of free speech? And it was, a, it was like a record-scratch moment, because we hadn't thought <laughs> well, about it, that it, in a it, it was, a, but it, all the people that are supposedly woke were the most unwoke about what really was important, well, think, right? Are you, are you saying well, that they should have taken a, a stronger stand for human rights in China? I'm glad that Daryl Morey tweeted what he did. You are then? Yeah, okay. Yeah, of course. It's a new kind of friction. It's like the first moment we're feeling that. You know, the, those first pangs, I don't think you get the full response. You're just sort of figuring out this so new what normal. Is the, what, what would the response be in, in your in, world? In my you world? You were writing the book for what the NBA was supposed to do. Well, I think that the NBA would probably, probably do what Adam, Adam Silver ended up saying, which is like, we can't police this. We're a league that operates according to free speech. You kind of have to take it or leave it. And then China makes that call. Which I think is the line they're trying to hold while while not pissing anyone off. Uh, but if I think about but if I think about the need for say uh, American companies to say promote American values in China, let's say that becomes a new concern, just as right. it was in the Cold War, where American companies were promoting freedom and the idea that you know you wouldn't do certain things in markets because that wasn't in the American interest. I think that we're going to have that idea come back again. Because to me, if I look at the 1950s and 60s, the golden age of capitalism, what was happening then is that capitalism was competing with communism. It was forced to prove its merits. Like the scoreboard was which system can produce the biggest middle class, can help the most people get to a place of financial sustainability. And it was incredibly performative in those moments. And now there is no real competition for capitalism. We've been in this period of peacetime. What do you make of the argument by our Treasury Secretary, Steve Schwartzman, others who've looked at, for example, what the Business Roundtable has announced and said, you know what, I wouldn't sign that. And the reason they they often argue they wouldn't sign it isn't because they don't think that businesses aren't aren't already doing these things, which they would argue they are. And you, you could dispute that if you want. But they would say, look, it's too hard to serve so many masters. Yeah. If, you give me, if you give me one target, I can, I, can, I can do that, and I probably have to do all these other things to get there. Yeah. But if you give me five, yeah. I, don't know, I don't know how to value or judge what I'm doing. Yeah, I, I, I think that's probably true. I think maybe five's too much. It might be two or three. It might be there's 
10 that we're collectively working towards, but it's not everybody's job to work on every single thing. So I feel like the, the notion of an expansion of responsibility for businesses, I mean, it's, it's already happening. Customers are demanding it. Employees are demanding it. Smart companies know that that's how you lead in a market, is by being the first to sort of stake out that ground. Uh, and I, I think it's just going to keep happening. Yancy, you, you've walked the walk for a long time with this. Uh, back in 2015, when you said that the, the company would not go public, would yeah. never go public, people were looking at a 520-plus million dollar valuation on, on, on the company. But walking away from that and, and now watching what's happening at Kickstarter, is there a time that company will ever go public, you think? Uh, it's, it's hard for me to imagine. I mean, I, you know, the mindset about not going public, all those things, it's just like we, we really want the service to be what it needs to be for that community. So it, it's just trying to think about those lines, what best serves this product, this platform existing for the long term. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think that's, you know, that's the best way to do that. But, you know, I think it's, it's, it's less dogmatic than it is just serving the mission is what matters, like a, a place like Kickstarter is important, a place where someone like the Peloton founders can put an idea and just have a shot. You know, it, it's so wide open, and that, that space needs to be preserved. So that, that's the responsibility. Yeah, Yancy, thank you for coming in today. We really appreciate Good it. Luck with the book. Good luck with the book. That's the show for today. On our rundown tomorrow, investor and private equity legend David Rubenstein. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. Is this something that I should be Googling? Is that what you're suggesting? That's a good idea. Google roller coaster Halloween costume because it was actually pretty creative. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please rate and review. That helps other listeners find us. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.